Welcome to Being Human, Liz Keogh, my guest today. I know you through the Agile community, for your, especially for your work on Kinevin and Dave Snowden, the originator of Kinevin, the complexity framework, as, as a former guest on the show. Uh, and I've seen you around at conferences, and I know that you're, you're big into behaviour development. Behaviour-driven development, development. Uh, and uh, North was also a guest on the show. So you, so you're connected into my community, yeah. and I'm so excited to have your perspective brought into the to the big human canon. Uh, and and specifically, I'd love to to touch on on complexity and Kinevin because they've been really popular topics uh, so far. So should we should we start there? And yeah, maybe for people means. who've never heard that word. What, what, sure. what do we mean by Kinevin? Um, so Kinevin is Dave Snowden's framework for making sense of the world. Um, it particularly helps you make sense of different situations depending on how much certainty or uncertainty they have associated with them. So it has these five domains. Um, Dave always talks about the ordered domains. So things are either really obvious or complicated. Um, complicated stuff requires some analysis. Obvious stuff is obvious. Um, but then you get things where there's uncertainty and unpredictability. So the ordered domains are predictable. You can tell what the outcome is going to be. The chaotic domain I find really interesting because it's why human beings don't like uncertainty. So uh, your house burning down, people bleeding to death. Um, it's normally regarded as a really bad place to be. Um, it is also the domain of urgent opportunity, but it's dominated by that urgency, whether it's good a good opportunity or a, a bad situation that you have to get out of. Um, and it's transient and resolves itself very quickly, not necessarily in your favour. So because of that, we tend to try and aim for things to be predictable. And this is, this is the big problem with complexity. Complexity things are um, cause and effect are correlated in retrospect. So you can see how you got there, but you couldn't possibly have predicted it. And we're kind of used to emergent outcomes in Agile. But most of the time, that emergence runs counter to the way our brains work. So it run, runs counter to our sense of confirmation bias, particularly. Um, and, and, and for people who've not heard, I'm sure plenty of people have, but for people who haven't heard of confirmation bias. What do you mean right. Our brains tend to filter information um, in accordance with beliefs that we've already set up. So the world as we see it is not the world as it actually exists. Um, somebody said once, right, but... Our eyes and our ears do actually see and hear the world the way it really is. I said, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, so there's a brilliant thing on YouTube called the McGurk effect. If you McGurk. look up the McGurk effect or you can just look up ba, 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 da, da, da and look, look that up on YouTube, you'll find a video. And it's a video of somebody saying um, da, 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 but his lips are moving ba, ba, ba. And when you watch it with the lips moving, what you hear is ba, ba, ba. And then you can close your eyes, watch it again, da, da, da. Like, that's how broken our brains are. So I'm slightly deaf. Um, as you mm. saw me, I've got my hearing aid in right now. And I always tell people um, I, I can partially lip read. And it's not that um, when I see people's lips moving, I can work out what they're saying. It's that it sounds clearer. <laughs> my brain literally <laughs> interprets the sounds much better, which is why we're face to face here today, because it just makes it easier for me. Um, so, yeah, our brains don't work normally. They, they don't just take in everything and filter things in an impartial way. The way we see the world is absolutely filtered by the beliefs we've already set up. So particularly 
that can mean things like um, sunk cost fallacy. So you've invested quite a lot into getting this particular techie thing working and it doesn't seem to be working and the customers don't like it. You're like, oh, how do we fix it instead of how do we abandon it? You know, that's the sunk cost fallacy that you don't want to you don't want to move away from something you've already put cost into, even though it might be the right thing to do. Um, so that's one form of confirmation bias. Um, another is um, my favourite is apophenia, which is our tendency to see patterns that don't exist. Particularly, that means that when we see things going wrong, we think we understand the cause. And you will see people attacking root causes relentlessly, not realising there's a whole context of stuff that keeps things in place. And you don't know which bits of the context can be unpicked. So the whole point of the, the whole thing that Kenevin says um, is when you're in that level of complexity and when you're dealing with cultural change, you're always with that level of complexity. Um, you've got to try multiple, multiple things and you don't understand the situation until you've managed to change it, by which time you've managed to change it. OK, so, but, okay, so just to, to, to unpack that a bit. So we've got this apophenia, this yeah. I'm, I'm sensing patterns that aren't there. I think I've got some root causes to this situation I'm dealing yeah. with, um, but they may not be the root causes because it's an it's an incorrect match. They might be some. They might be part of multiple contexts, multiple an ecosystem of of causes. Okay, and that's what and complexity gives us that insight that actually there's not a linear causality here yeah. that our brains are telling us exists. Yeah, there's. Something else which isn't that, yep, that we call exactly. complexity. Exactly. Okay. And, and how, and you've just talked about multiple approaches to resolve a problem. How's that different from attacking multiple root causes, say? What's, um, I, I don't like attacking things. Um, okay. when, I, when I hear somebody says, oh, that won't work here because, I stop. Right. At that point, if you keep pushing, all, you, all that's going to happen is they strengthen their belief about why it's not going to work here. And you get that far effect. You get this emotional reaction to the, the changes you're proposing. Um, so some of the things I, I, I do as a coach, I'll say, well, could we try this? And if they go, no, that won't work. OK, OK, no problem. Let's try something else. There's always multiple, multiple things that you can try. And some of them will be disposed to land and some of them won't. So um, if things aren't disposed to land, move away from them, try something different. Um, Dave said always talks about how cultural change happens with the things that, that are lowest energy. So the things which are already disposed to land. And you can actually hear that in organisations if you listen to the stories people tell. I mean, Dave's obviously got the SenseMaker tool, which does this electronically. But you, poor man SenseMaker, just listen to the stories happening. Some of them will be in a better place than others. And that will tell you, oh, these kind of stories are disposed to land. So maybe somebody's doing a little bit of BDD over here, or maybe somebody's got a deployment tool working. You know, they've got Jenkins, got Team City working. Maybe somebody is having a really great success with Kanban. Um, we managed to get a coach I trained managed to get Kanban working in the testing phase of a four year waterfall project. I'm so, so proud. Like, that's the kind of that's what we mean by making it better rather than going, oh, no, but you must go agile. Um, going agile doesn't work. It's, it's a big bang outcome driven thing. Whereas actually just trying small improvements, small improvements, small improvements and allowing 
the context to change and emerge, the new context to emerge, um, generally more successful. Okay, and I'm just so for for non-technical listeners who aren't involved with code deployment or maybe unfamiliar with the idea of Kanban, you're you're, you're really saying listen for well. Let's let's I'll ask you. So when you say disposition, what yeah, what does what does that mean? Um, so I asked somebody once, is a football game complex or complicated? And they said, I don't know. I said, well, is it predictable or not? And they said, well, it depends. Are England playing? And, <laughs> no. Just because England are disposed to lose doesn't mean they will, right? So that's what disposition is. Um, you have things which are more likely than, than not. Right. And um, but it's still not guaranteed. There's still no absolute predictability for it. Okay. And so your job, if you're seeking to uh, invite change or promote change in an organisation, is to listen for the disposition of, right. of the population. <laughs> what's What's going to land? What are the st- so when you're listening to those stories, what are you listening for if you're trying to sense? I'm listening for stuff that's already working in okay. small places. Okay. You know, um, it's what Dave calls weak signals. So things where, okay, there's one group over here and managing to do something that I had not expected, and it's better than what most people are doing. So rather than going, oh, this group's amazing, we should push them even further, let's, let's see if they can... So there's a thing with probes where you amplify them. When you see, get something working, you amplify it. Um, so I will ask that, that group, could you do a presentation on it? Can you write something on your intranet? Um, can you make a poster? Could we get? How do we get that out to the rest of the organisation? Okay, and, and I teach the leadership to do this as well, um, and that's hard because we notice things going wrong way more than we notice things going right. Right. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably another bias, right? Yeah. Also, yeah. Um, so there's a couple of technical terms there. So probe, and then amplifying the effects of that right. probe. So it's, yeah, let's talk it's about kind what of a like an experiment, means. but an experiment normally has a hypothesis. We are doing an experiment to see if this thing is true. Um, in coherence, the hypothesis is just an example. It's one example of what we might see. Um, and we might see something completely opposite. We so don't co- coherence is an important concept, isn't it, as yep. part of the probe? Yep. So, 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 okay, so let's start with the probe and then move to coherence. So probe is, is like an experiment, but I don't have a hypothesis. I might just cite an example of what might happen. Exactly. So um, the example is what makes it coherent. We have a reasonable reason for thinking that this might have a good effect. Um, Dave calls it a sufficiency of evidence to progress. Okay, and why is that better than thinking about doing an experiment? Um, I'm okay when people talk about experiment, just as long as they don't get hung up on the outcome. So uh, remember I said cause and effect are correlated in retrospect? I once went to this this particular uh, company, um, and they had a very experimental culture. They liked trying things out. They had this lovely graph on the wall, which had these two humps. And I looked at it, and I, I could see there were dates underneath, and it went up to about 100 on the y-axis. And I said, is that your bug count? They said, good guess. I said, what happened? They said, well, our bugs were too high. So we thought we'd hire a, a new person and then rotate an existing team member into fi- just fixing bugs. And the bugs started to go down. So um, then... It was working so well, we thought we'd do it again. So we got another new person on board and rotated another existing team member through for fixing bugs, and the bugs started to go up. Now, remember what I said about people spot root causes? I was like, oh, was that new dev no good then? Like, this poor guy, was a guy, um, poor guy, like, I've never even met him. 
and I'm just, I've already come to this judgment based on this graph about how good he is, you know, and, and that bias is already set up. That's how quickly we set up biases. I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. And even when you're aware that biases exist, you're still subject to them. So there am I doing root cause analysis, this poor guy. Um, no, no, it wasn't the new dev. I was, oh, did the team get complacent? Now I'm judging the whole team. Right. <laughs> no, it wasn't the team. So I went through all these different ideas, like, well, was it this? Was it this? You know, was the code base too complex? And then, no, no, no. They got these big grins on their faces. I said, well, where were the bugs coming from? They said, ah, they were already there. The users had spotted that we were fixing them, so they started reporting them. <laughs> so they had the complete opposite of what they expected, but it was a good thing. And we often see this in complexity, that... Um, sometimes, you know, um, you'll see the opposite of what you intended. So one of the things that I've found is that once you start getting work limit, limited work in progress, so you're focused on finishing things before you start the next things, quite a lot of the time, the cycle time will go up, not down. You know, it's so look for like people listen, so longer. cycle time is how long it takes. How long to it takes to done. get something from like when you start, when you when it's you ideally in production. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's because people are finally finishing off those things that have been in progress for six months, you know, and they've discarded a bunch of others, which also counts. So you, you see an increase in cycle time before you see a decrease. And I always say if you want to actually see the real picture, you might want to start um, look at the cycle time based on when things start, if not when things finished. And you'll see that as the, the things you've started most recently are finishing more quickly. Um, but, you know, you've got to have some curiosity about why things are working the way they are, um, because you don't get what you expect. Um, when you put policemen on the beat, the reported crime rate goes up because people are more willing to report more crime because they've got a local policeman they can talk to. Um, it's you often get these side effects. And particularly when I see people put metrics which are targets on agile transformations, you get all kinds of side effects happening, and they're not always good. Okay. Okay, and, th and then that links to what you said about the, the issue with experiments, yeah. having a hypothesis with a fixed outcome. It sounds like that correlates with the, the problem of having a, a fixed target. Exactly, exactly. But, so, but ultimately, what is the problem, though? Because, yeah, I mean, how does that actually cause an issue by having an outcome? Um, it causes an issue because people then start investing in the outcome. Okay. So they'll take something which is perfectly safe to fail and they'll start putting scaffolding around it. They'll start working out ways to make it more successful. And the more they invest in it, the more sunk fallacy costs they've got. Mm. Right. And the, the less willing the, and the less safe it becomes to fail. Um, and it gets mm. communicated to everybody. It becomes this really big deal. And then it doesn't work out. And everybody feels really disappointed. Whereas actually, if you just tried something small and lightweight and said, we'd like to try this, it might not work. Let's give it a go. A lot of the time that, OK, that didn't work. Let's try something else. It's but when... what, OK, but what about the people <laughs> listening to this like, who are thinking, <laughs> yeah, but we've got to have something to aim for and having a high bar drives performance and it's important that we focus on a goal. Right, so um, Chris Matt's real options. I highly recommend Chris Matt's comes on this, by the way. Um, he, he says, you know, never commit early unless you know why. Sure, if you want to motivate people and that's still a safe thing to do by all means go motivate people like um I, I signed up for a 10k race once i'm not very fit i don't i've only run that 10k once um when i signed up for it it was a 35 pound option 
when I communicated it to people and got sponsorship, it became a commitment. But that was motivating for me. So that was why I did it early. But why would you put investments? Why would you make commitments around stuff when you're doing culture change? Okay. Given that you know most of the things you try will probably fail. Right. So that's okay. So, but that's an important. That's important idea for people to accept. Yeah. Is that if I do, if I'm seeking to make changes, a culture change, or presumably any change in a complex domain, yeah. most of the things I try will fail. That's quite a difficult thing for a proud human being to accept. They'll fail in different ways, though, and you learn stuff from them. And maybe some part of it will work, or maybe it will go. It it, it might be better, but not in the way you expected, as we as we saw. Um, so, you know, your, your attempt to reach that target, your, if you treat it as a, an experiment with a hypothesis, your hypothesis will fail. And that might be OK. Right. But that might be okay. But the downside is if I have lots, the more experiments I have, the more scaffolding I put around it, the, the more I have invested in not failing, presumably takes energy and resource away from just doing more. Probes. More small, small things, yeah. yeah more small things. Um, I, I remember the first time I was working with this one team, the first time they failed a production release. So they put something into production and immediately started seeing, you know, 501 errors, 503 errors. Just, I can't remember what These kind are of internet errors, errors, errors yeah, yeah, for, for their, the Their website was, online, was misbehaving yeah. um, and customers were obviously getting blank pages instead of um, things that they could buy and so they had to roll it back. But they had rollback in place. And so they were like, yep, we rolled it back. That didn't work. OK, let's try again tomorrow. And that was just such a key moment. At that point, it becomes OK to experiment. It becomes OK to just try things. Um, and presumably, they had a management and a leadership who weren't castigating them for this yeah, 501. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, um, that technical safety net provided the psychological safety. And that's not something which I think a lot of people talk about, the fact that you can get more psychological safety when you've got the technical safety in place. So we keep talking about cultural change. Sometimes a technical thing like getting rollback in place can make a huge difference to the culture. You know, um, I, I highly advise it as trying and do that. Yeah, that's technical right. Technical stuff always... is, is actually slightly predictable, so it tends to be disposed to land in a way that psychological change, cultural change, normally doesn't. Right. So you're saying there's potentially slightly less complexity when we're dealing with technical systems. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. And that's and this is where I always get I get slightly stuck with complexity is that it's true that some contexts or domains are more ordered, but then. There are always humans involved, and humans are complex. So it's like yeah. there's always some yeah, yeah, complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Which there then, is, at which point, is. you're like, well, why? Why does Kinevin make sense at all? You'll, you'll see things like complex. you know, you'll you'll go, okay, let's put this technical thing in place because it'll make a difference, and suddenly all the politics around it will shift. So you'll get people wanting to own it so they can make a name for themselves, and um, you know, complaining that you're taking their engineers away, and why are we doing this? We tried this two years ago, it didn't work. Um, and that's even without Simon Wardley's mapping stuff, where he always says, you know, the thing that you spent money on five years ago, custom building, now there's a library which does it for you. And having that conversation is politically challenging. Um, so there's all kinds of politics end up coming into play around that. But you, you still consider it to be a valid place to think from 
even though... Try it. I definitely mm. reckon try the technical stuff. If you can't get the psychological stuff, try the technical stuff. Right, okay. Um, uh, okay. There's so always it, multiple things to look at. And this is in the context of how do we enable ourselves to, to exp probe in a way that's safe to fail. Yeah. So look at the technical and look at the... Yes, look at them both. Look at the look psychological. At so in the example of that website, to summarise it, there's the technical part of that, which was allowing for a rollback. So that's allowed to go back to an older version of the software, which was working. But there's also having an environment where there wasn't managers and leaders screaming at people for taking the site down. Or, no, yeah, no. I so mean, it's, it's, it, there's a high level of psychological safety in that organisation anyway, compared to most... Um, but yeah, it's, it, the rollback made such a difference, mm. you know, such a difference. I mean, this has changed the way I live my life. Um, I, we were talking just before we started recording about my, my boyfriend, Darren. Um, we're currently doing an experiment called How Small a Flat Can We Live In? It's not working. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> but it's great because we're finding out what we do need. So, you know. You learn to, to try things that you wouldn't even But you, you don't have an easy rollback. Do you have a mansion in the country you could roll back to? If it's uh, we're renting. Okay. We're renting. So um, you've made it safer. Yeah, yeah we've made it safe. Right. So we, we didn't buy. But we're, we're now thinking of maybe buying a place. Um, so when we do that, we're probably going to um, either rent in the, the area or just stay in a hotel for a few nights and try out what, it would, what, what would it be like to live in this area um, mm. before we make the big commitment of buying something. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, that makes sense. And the other thing you talk about in terms of working out whether you're in a more ordered space or a, or a less ordered space is this idea of asking questions, right? You've got these, these five questions. Oh, right, the five-point scale, yeah. right. So, yeah, so um, new stuff that you've never done before, you're always, always going to make discoveries around it, so it's generally complex. Um, so I ask, who in the world's ever done this before? So five is nobody in the world's ever done this before. Four is somebody's done it, but not in this organisation. Three, somebody in the organisation's done it, or we have expertise available in a different way. Two, somebody in the team's done it, when we all know how to do it. And it's the fives and fours you've got to watch for. Um, the fives might not work at all. The four, you know somebody's done it, but you don't know how. You don't know what they had in their context, what capabilities they already had that enabled it. Um, who got fired for taking too long, uh, what regulators came out that would work to stop them. You, you are, it's still going to be a really high discovery space. So I just use that as a guide for helping people work out. It is just a guide. It is approximate. Um, but if you've never done it before and you have no access to expertise, you pretty much have to treat it as if it's complex. Right, right. So, and so your yeah. level of expertise will dictate how ordered the context appears. Have you done it before and how similar is it to the, this thing is to the thing you've tried before, you know, the thing okay. you've done before. Um, I remember David Anderson always said you can turn a four into a two just by poaching somebody from the other, the other company, you know. <laughs> and it's like sometimes that's the cheapest thing to do because then you've got somebody on the team who's done it before. Right, okay. Okay. And that's what's interesting, isn't it? Because there, there, there are two, well, two dimensions to this because there's the, the level of almost inherent complexity, the level yep. of inherent order of, of whatever the context is. And then there's one's understanding of the order. Right. Uh, and is it like a function? <laughs> like 
X times Y. Kind of, yeah. I mean, Simon, Simon Wadley's mapping turns out to have a huge amount in common with Kenevin. So the way he draws it, he, I'm going to do it mirror for the people on the camera. Um, he always says, you know, you've got your custom builds, Genesis stuff here, so ideas about what could we do, and then you custom build, and then it becomes a product, and eventually that product becomes commoditized. So he said that's happened with computers. You know, we were custom building computers, um, and then... Um, there was product. I remember I had a BBC B and then it became very commoditized. Everybody's got computers. We've got them on our phones and now computing power is commoditized. So things like AWS, it's available. We don't need to own our own service anymore. They'll have that. Amazon will yeah. take care of that for us. Um, and he and Simon talks about how you should not, as an organisation, be owning your own service anymore. You should be looking because Amazon can make those savings, that cost of scale. But they can do it because it's really, really well understood as a problem now. It's super, super stable. So that's that movement from complexity, not understood, emergent outcomes, all the way across um, what uh, Dave calls the liminal threshold, where you're trying out one one solution, you're still iterating towards it, but you're not running multiple things in parallel expecting them to fail anymore. You reckon it's going to work, but it's finding out how. So you're on that boundary between that complex and the complicated, and then it's understood, and you, you've got expertise in it. It's GPS systems, you know. I don't know how a GPS system works, but I can go get a function somebody wrote off the internet, um, and that's great. It works, you know. Um, I don't need to have that expertise anymore because it's a product. Mm, okay. Somebody else has it. They'll, they'll sell it to me. Sweet. Or, you know, give it away for free. This happens with lots of open source. Right. Okay. Yeah. But that's, but coming back to trying to get my head around so this is, in that scenario that you've described, it sounds to me like you've, you've described a increasing quotient of, of a human understanding of a particular domain but and I suppose the humans engaged in that domain have changed it somewhat but the level of order may not have changed like that the underlying nature of that corner of the universe is still just as uncertain. Well, complexity, certain. complexity only exists because um, fundamentally the, the universe continues forward if we could understand all of the context and model it completely accurately um, we would have that predictability, you know. But, but the, but the, the, but the, but the universe wouldn't become France, more ordered exactly. through our understanding um, of it. And, the, and I think it was Simon who said the accurate model of France is France. <laughs> That's how big it would have to be. So we, we can never model everything exactly. We can never have complete understanding of our context. That's why complexity exists. Um, and uh, chess games are a really interesting one to think of. Are they predictable or are they not? And because of the, the number of possible combinations of moves, they end up being complex. Mm. Even though there's actually reasonably tight constraints on that board. You know, the fact that there's so many pieces that can move in so many different ways means it, it ends up being complex. Right. Which is actually a nice analogy, because when you think of most of the business environments we're in, they're easily as complex as a as a chessboard, yes. there's easily as many actors and they've got easily as many options for movement, you know, many more times one expects. So, yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's nice. 
simply as humans cannot hold the whole thing in our head. Yeah. Um, computers, uh, they can look a very large number of moves ahead, but I'm pretty sure even the best chess playing computers can't hold the whole game in advance in their heads. Mm. You know, they're not going through a sequence and going, this is how I can predict I will win. Um, they have to learn strategies just like people do. Yeah. And heuristics. Uh, and when you work with teams who are looking to apply this understanding of, of complexity, is that where you start? Is it the five-point scale? or where I do you... generally teach from Kalevin uh, with some examples so that they have some understanding and, and they think of their own examples. When I do the, the workshop, it's quite interactive. Um, they come up with their own examples. There's a beautiful thing called Four Points Contextualization, which Cognitive Edge teach. Um, it's on their site. It's one of their methods. Uh, and um, Mike Burrows, um, he's mm. asked Blake on Twitter. He has, runs a gender shift. Yeah, he he has a that. great way of eliciting stuff to populate that with clean language questions. Um, and with those ideas in place, you can then go, OK, well, where's the boundary between the complex and the complicated? Um, so I normally get people to do some exercises like that. And then I teach them a five point scale. And then we think about the requirements that we're working with, um, which are generally, you know, there's there's generally some aspects of requirements in software development which are well understood. It's not like cultural change where everything is generally weird. Um, <laughs> So logging in, we know how logging in works. You know, it's predictable. Um, that new website that you're building, that brand new UI that you've never shown to a trader before, they might have some opinions on that. They might have some feedback for you and it might not work for them. And we've had that actually happen. Um, we had that happen on a, a project where it was assumed there was a level of predictability. So the UI designers had designed this beautiful UI and then gone off somewhere else. So we didn't have any UI designers anymore. So we did what you should never ever do, which is got the devs to design something because uh, what we had wasn't working for the traders. But three of us independently came up with different designs. This is what uh, Dave calls the shallow dive into chaos. I didn't know that term, but I did know concurrent set based engineering, which is one form of that. So you separate people to come up with ideas on their own because in chaos, you act on your own, you know, in the, always put your own mask on before you help someone else. Um, well, well, so what's that? That's from the air, from the airplane. You know? okay. So when you're in the chaos, when you've got an emergency, emergency situation, that urgent, we've got to do something right now thing, um, people act as individuals. So the idea of a shallow dive into chaos is you separate people. And if you've got a lot of people, you separate them into small groups. And you try and make those groups as diverse between the groups as possible. So you put all the testers together, all the devs together, all the analysts together, all of the managers together, and you get them to come up with the ideas. And that way you get the widest variety of ideas. And then you bring the ideas together to work on them. Um, it's the same kind of thing we do when we do silent work in retrospectives and we get people to write on post-its before we go, OK, what went well, what didn't go well? Because it stops people biasing each other. OK. But it, and it also gives you a, mul a multitude of pros right. that you can then exactly. Exactly. potentially go forward with simultaneously, all of them. Is exactly, that... yeah. Um, there's a, a little bit more formality that Cognitive Edge do around. So Cognitive Edge um, is Dave Snowden's company that they do around the probes. They do a thing called ritual descent, where you present the probe to a, a competing group and they rip it to pieces. Um, and they're meant to be very mean about it, and you have to have quite a robust personality to go through that process. Um, okay. 
And why that? I mean, why why the ritual humiliation versus getting it's not ritual humiliation. It's it's checking to see that the probe um, has a way of working, has a way of succeeding, and you're a way you'll know it's working. A way you'll know it's succeeding. If it works, you are going to be able to amplify it and make sure it carries on working. If it doesn't work, you are going to be able to dampen it and, and mitigate the effects. And it's got to have that coherence, that reason, realistic reason for thinking it's a good idea. Okay. Um, so those f five criteria are what they evaluate it on. Okay. Um, but obviously they're taking your idea, which you've come up with, and they're telling you why it's not a good idea. So um, that requires somebody who's prepared to receive that feedback. But from that, you refine the ideas until everybody goes, yeah, okay, let's do it. You know, and that's how you get good, solid probes that you can try. Um, I found that if you just want to try something lightweight and it's already got some disposition and it, everybody says it's okay to fail, just go ahead and do it. You know, um, okay. I'm, I'm much more lightweight in my So my there's approaches. a judgment about how rigorously to, yeah. to expose your potential probe to critique. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, and I mean, actually, as I'm, I reflect on that... I'm generally working that... with a few people that I know fairly well, so the feedback loops tend to be in place already. Uh, Dave, when he does it, he's working with entire countries' populations. You know, so it has to be a little bit more rigorous, I think. Um, okay. But isn't that... So the fact that you asked yourself, could this work here... Is there, is there a downside of that, is that you then can't be entirely curiosity-driven? Because what if you were just like, actually, I believe the chances are this isn't going to work here, but I want yep. to do it anyway because I'm curious. Does it sort of preclude those types of probes? Not at all. If it's safe to fail, it's okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so even if it doesn't seem coherent particularly, you still might consciously choose to go ahead anyway. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And real options is, is to some extent based on this, that you, you may deliberately take paths which are failing as well. Um, so the example we have that is uh, the, the Brickell Key Award. Um, so David Anderson has this big conference in the US that he does every year. And, and this one year he had this award he wanted to give out and they had a short list of six people and they needed to narrow it down to two. But the people who were voting were very, very highly paid international consultants all over the world, and they couldn't do it by Skype. They had to be in the same room. The only day they could get them in the same room was the, the, the Monday before the conference. Conference starts on the Tuesday. The award ceremony is on the Thursday, and the lead time for getting the crystal trophies engraved with the winners' names is four weeks. So they made six trophies, right. knowing that they were going to demolish four of them. Um, and as they eliminated people, they broke the trophies. <laughs> okay. There was a rumour that Chris Matz was running around that conference with one of these in a bag going, anyone wants to see what an expired option looks like? Um, but yeah, okay. so deliberately opening up options that you know you're not going to use or that you, you might not use. Okay, and that's part of the philosophy here. Yeah. Yeah. This, is <laughs> this is going to seem, to a lot of people listening, highly counter... Counterintuitive. It's very counterintuitive, yeah. It's completely counterintuitive because we like predictability. We don't like um, failure. Failure feels wrong to us. Um, we, we get negative chemicals when we think we failed at something. We get a big buzz of chemicals, really good, you know, serotonin, oxytocin in there. Um, and all of that good stuff happens when we succeed. 
and we go, oh, we succeeded. Interestingly, um, it also happens when you nearly win, which is why gambling is so addictive. Because hmm. even nearly winning, you get the same buzz. Um, but when we fail, it's all suppressed and we don't feel good. So we are self-incentivized to go and find things that we know are going to work and not do the things we know might not or won't. Right, okay. Okay. And so is the coherence test a way of giving us a little bit of the, the good juice to know when it might work? Well, coherent, it, it makes no sense to do something that isn't coherent. So the way I always um, ask for coherence is, can you give me an example where this works? And if you can't think of an example, chances are good that it's not, it's simply not right. going to work. Like you have to be able to think of at least one scenario in which it works, um, which can include learning something from it. You know, I was reasonably sure that that flat experiment was not going to work, <laughs> but I knew we were going to learn something from it. So, and it was okay, okay for it to fail. Right. Okay. But that takes something. So I think there is something about a, or a, a somewhat special human quality here that's required to take this approach. Yeah, yeah. it helps that my partner also knows Kenevin. So. Right. We accept, <laughs> we sort of knowingly accept some, some bad vibes, yeah. potentially, for going yeah. forward with, in this way. Yeah. Right. And it, it is counterintuitive. Mm. You know, it doesn't play into our, our desire to find the patterns. Yeah, okay. Um, but on the flip side, so, so let's say just to bring this up a bit then, so where have you seen it really, really powerfully work? Um, like I said, that, that team that had the rollback in place, um, that was really, really good. Um, just having that culture of being willing to try things out. Um, and I, I've seen the culture of that particular organisation change as they started taking this journey. You know, they're willing to try things. They're willing to go, OK, you know, we said this thing. It hasn't quite worked. We'd like to try something different. Um, so having the management own up to things not working that they've tried is just such a, a change from most management where they go, no, but we, we're doing this agile transformation and we shall keep going down this path until everybody is doing stand-ups. You know, it's like, well, maybe they're not doing stand-ups because they've got some other context. Maybe they're not doing stand-ups because they're all on Slack so much they don't really need a stand-up to share what's going on. Um, have some curiosity about it, hmm. you know? Yeah. I had some, I saw one place where they put a metric in place that said, you know, you will release, you will be cast agile level whatever if you release um, every, at least every two weeks. And this one team, great, we are releasing at least every two weeks. We are agile. They said nothing about the stuff they weren't releasing and how much that um, amassed not released yet was growing because it wasn't being measured. Perverse incentives, side effects that are unfortunate. Um, so, yeah, be careful of the targets. Don't make them targets. Make them things you're, you're measuring. Indicators is a good word. I like the word indicators. They're indicators of progress but you can't make them targets. And is that something to include in your probe, an indicator? Yeah, you have to have a way of knowing it's succeeding and a way yeah. of knowing it's failing. Yeah. But bear in mind that you might see the opposite and it might also be good. So. 
right. you do have to be curious about these things. And, yeah, you know, it's almost the, bank the, on them. the curiosity manifesto, isn't it? Yeah. Right. With yeah. No, I, I can see that. Um, in fact, it, and it reminds me of the, the one of the scientists who developed the CRISPR gene editing technology talked about the paucity of, of, of curiosity in, in the sciences because they, they discovered gene editing by uh, studying, um, I think it was the uh, reproduction of bacteria, it was something completely obtuse, and they were just curious about it. Oh, so she tells the story. Ah, oh, what's this? This is interesting, and, and happened upon gene editing well it, no it wasn't the it was the it was the immune system the way the immune the immuno response actually of, of bacteria yeah. i think yeah. yeah i mean a lot of scientific discoveries have come about um as a as a side effect of, of things so x-rays um you know somebody accidentally radiographed a film i think it was um, edison's film got made white um from a from a radiation source, and from that they discovered X-rays. Um, my favourite story is always the little blue pill, um, and I always tell people you know what the side effects of Viagra if you are, and if you don't, check your spam folder; they will tell you at length. Um, but the interesting thing is how they found out, because normally at the end of every trial they go and get the extra pills back. Nobody was giving their pills back, <laughs> you know. And you've got to you having that curiosity about what's going on there was how they discovered the other side effects. It was originally marketed for hypertension. Mm. And that's, and actually I think I've heard Dave Soden talk about that, is you've, you've got to do the probes, but then you've got to be tuned in. You've got to be listening for what emerges. Yeah. It, it, and, it, and that, uh, yeah, and, and that's something important to consider. Yeah, and you get side effects. So I always um, think of things in terms of capabilities. What, what, what are we as an organisation? What is the team? What is this system capable of doing? Um, you know, Amazon obviously did that. They're not just a bookseller anymore. Um, AWS was something they were capable of offering to people. And they can think laterally like that. Um, so what else have you, have you got? Um, there's a company called, uh, I always tell the story of this company, Ludicor. Um, they had this big online game called Game Never Ending. They wanted people to come play. Um, and they managed to get this bit of the game where you shared screenshots uh, working. But then a dot-com crash happened and they had to go repurpose it to, to make some money. So that became Flickr. So instead of sharing screenshots, you're now sharing photographs. Um, and again, they tried to get this game working. Again, they managed to get the admin tools, messaging tools, working behind the scenes of the game for the admins to talk to each other. Um, and again, had to repurpose them. And that became Slack. You know, so you, you have these side effects when you look at what capabilities could we use for something different. Yeah. Um, and Simon Wardley talks an awful lot about that. Right. Isn't that the acceptation thing? Where, you know, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Have... Acceptation, the... the um, Using something for, insulation for the purpose and then for which became... it was not intended. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've got my uh, failure focus talk has dinosaur, dinosaur themed. It's one of my favourites because I love dinosaurs. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, so, and so that is looking at what you have, sensing for where it might provide a different utility. Yeah, and exactly. probing in exactly. that space. Yeah, and I've seen people. I've seen a startup fail because they were so intent on 
the purpose for which they have founded the startup. They didn't investigate what other people were using this thing for. Mm. Um, you know, they didn't pivot. Right, and, but, but, but this is again so counter to much of the sort of management dogma. You know, have a purpose, have a clear goal, align around your goal and your outcomes. I mean, that's such a <laughs> central part of so much of management dogma, and, and we, we we're cutting right against. Well, you've got to try. You know, you've got to try something. Um, I th I think the trick is when it's not working, be willing to try something else. Mm. Be willing to go. This has not worked. Um, Let's try something different. Yeah. Right. And accepting that some of those edifices in terms of the goals and the mission and all the rest of it may actually be limiting. Yeah. Yeah. And you might want to let go of them. Yeah. Letting go is hard for people. Yeah. Uh, especially when it comes to your baby. Yeah. <laughs> Startup or whatever. But we set this up to do X. You know, yes. That's the sunk exactly. cost fallacy. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'm not sure how we quite segue into this, but we did discuss <laughs> earlier about well, one of the other, a couple of interesting articles on your blog is around your own experiences with harassment and uh, and your reflections on the Me Too movement. And, yeah. and, and I've just found it such powerful writing, and I'm sure others who know you may have seen those articles. So. I wanted to just give you an opportunity yeah. to talk a bit about your perspective. Um, so the reason I wrote it is because um, some people on a mailing list I was involved in, were, were some, some men on the mailing list were talking about how hard it was to um, work out how to behave. And, and you know, they, they were worried about offending women. And I'm like, oh, for goodness sakes. Look, here's the kind of stuff we're talking about. You know? And I just listed pretty much what's on that blog. Um, and just said, this is what I have put up with as a woman. And most men have no idea. Most men simply don't know. It's like this. It is relentless. You know, I'm in my mid-40s now, and I'm still, you know, still had to report somebody for a code of conduct violation at Lean Agile Scotland. Like, and would you, you mind giving me? Would you mind sharing that as an example? Oh, he just he just touched my touched my ass. We were having a great conversation about bank transformations, um, you know. And he said goodbye and, and just touched my ass on the way out the bar. And I, I, because I knew, and this was a good thing because I knew that they had my back. Um, the organisers were very adamant about their willingness to support the code of conduct. I felt able to immediately have a go at him and tell him that was not okay. Um, and he did apologise, um, and I made him apologise more soberly to the conference organisers the next day as well, because it was their conference that he had done that at. It was their social event. Um, his wife was standing right next to him. <laughs> like, <laughs> mm. They were both quite drunk. Um, but yeah, so it does. It still happens. It still happens all the time. Um, I am actually going to share something which is not on that blog. Uh, it's not just the men. I have actually been punched in the back of the head by another female speaker at a conference who was also drunk. Um, you know, a lot of these things seem to involve too much alcohol. Uh, and yeah, she, she punched me in the back of the head because uh, she wasn't being listened to. So she is now, um, she promised me she wouldn't go to any more conferences. I think she has uh, lapsed on that promise. Um, but yeah, she's now banned from Nordev, so. She will not be going back to Nordev again. I will be at Nordev uh, later okay. on this month. 
Okay. But um, she she is now banned. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So it's not just it's not just a med. Right. Um, and that's okay. okay. Code of Connor is for everyone. Yeah. And and I said, but and I can't sit here and, and not share. So. So I've. Yeah, you've the got drink, a confession. Yeah, to I've make, got a confession. You? So I, and this is again drink related. So I was out on a on a social event with work colleagues, although it wasn't a work sponsored event. And I grabbed a female colleague who was actually more junior. Uh, I grabbed her ass, and uh, yeah, and uh, as far as I was aware, that's the only time in my career that I've done anything that would would cross that line, but. I, it's just reading it has me reflect on, yeah, just how different that experience is for women. Did you apologise to her? I didn't apologise to her, and I haven't apologised to her. Do you her want to apologise to her now? Well, I, I'm not. I don't want to name. <laughs> I'm struggling with this. Do I want to bring it up? Do I want to name her? Do I? Do I want? You know, I, I'm sure if she's watching, she knows who who it is. So maybe yeah. just say sorry. Sorry, yeah. yeah. If go. you are watching, and she knows who it is, and but it's. I think it's, you know, I suppose my feelings about this is I think what's happening with this movement is a lot of us who are prepared to open our eyes to it and hear what the women are saying are being confronted with the reality of the female experience. And of course we can't, I can't live it, but I I think there's something that's happening that we're, men are being forced to listen in a way that hasn't. Yeah, I, I, I will say um, not every guy in the world has grabbed women's bottoms, right? right? No. So you are actually a small minority. Yes. Um, and I, I'm sure that you appreciate that that behaviour is, is not okay now. Um, the problem is that... So I, we talked earlier about the fact that I, I am a free will sceptic. Um, it's nature and nurture. And... We have had an environment in which um, men have grown up thinking that was okay, that that was an okay thing to do. It was never okay. But I'm inclined to be forgiving of people who have grown up with that and then recognise that their behaviour is not good. Um, so I, I, I am generally not naming names because most of the time those people have apologised and have said, really sorry, I treated you that way, you know. Um, there have been a couple of instances. Uh, the, the guy who made the Roe Hypnol joke, joke at BDD London has not apologised to me, even though he's had multiple opportunities to do so. Um, he, he was accusing... He said that I wanted to put Roe Hypnol in his pint. Like, I was one of the very... In fact, I think I was probably the only woman in the room at that time. Um, and a few guys overheard him at the bar and kind of gave me funny looks. And I said, did you just say this? He was, you know, he doubled down on it instead of apologising. So, of course, I can't be around him now. I can't work with him. How do I work with somebody who, who says things like that about me? It's, there's, I have no idea why. I have no idea why he felt that that was an OK thing to do or say. You know, I managed to hold it together until I got out of there. Um, but just I'm shaking even thinking yeah, about yeah, it yeah. now, you know. It's a horrible, horrible thing to, to joke about. Um, yeah, weird. Just a weird thing to joke about as well. And it's not, it's not his only, the only instance of, of 
what I will call creepy behaviour that I've had from him. So I no longer associate with him. Right. Yeah, because it, uh, the other part of this is what is the right course of action? That's not an easy yeah, answer, um, is it? I mean, I, I, I didn't name names on the Me Too blog. Um, I will probably not name names um, except in private. I, th I think that there's the court of um, popular opinion is probably even worse than actual <laughs> the actual justice system. You know, there, there's a point at which you've paid your penance and it's done. That never happens if it, judgment comes through social media. Um, so I'm reluctant to name names on Twitter and what have you. Um, just because I think it never goes away when you do that. And I have, there have been some instances in the press where people have apologised ages ago for opinions they held. You know, the, the host of the Oscars who would have been hosting the Oscars, he actually apologised for making those remarks ages and ages ago. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, I think it's harsh. We all make mistakes. Every single human being makes mistakes. And especially when the culture is telling you it's okay, um, you're going to end up making mistakes. So I'm forgiving of those people who apologize. Yeah. You know, um, it doesn't mean you get a cookie for learning how to be a decent person. <laughs> right. No, 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 I, I, get, I get that. Um. I've had to uncover my own biases. So, um, it turns out that I have, I am white. I have that privilege. Um, I grew up in a world where people of color were routinely referred to um, the color of their skin through the use of edible substances. Um, so referring to, to colored people as being you know, people of color as, as coffee or caramel or mm. um, and I had to go through my book that I'm writing and undo all of those, you know. Um, so it, it, it wasn't universal through my book, but it's certainly something that um, I was reading about how to deal with this because I, I suddenly realised um, I'm white and therefore I have probably got some biases. So I actually deliberately went and looked up how do I write about people of colour um, and found that, yeah, you're doing it wrong. And again, I don't get a cookie for for learning that. I just I'm mentioning it because I want everybody to be aware. If I've uncovered racist biases in me, yeah. unconscious racist bias, yeah. yeah, we're all a little bit racist. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's not conscious, but I've grown up in this world, and right. this world has affected me. This world has given me these patterns of thought, um, and I've it's taken me a while to deliberately unpick them. I've probably still got plenty left. Um, I'm doing what I can to be a good ally. You know? Right. Yeah. And that's the thing, it's being a good ally is, is an important idea, isn't it? It's, you know, we are all flawed and we have done things that we wish we hadn't, all of us, so thinking about how we can support each it's other. not just it's not just thinking about how we can support it's deliberately exposing yourselves to the contrary ideas so i am deliberately thinking seeking out um strong technical leadership people of color women of color especially um 
following them on Twitter, reading their blogs and trying to, to, to counter the biases by deliberately exposing myself to the other patterns. Right, and I suppose if I relate that to my own experience, it's about deliberately reading. You know, I, I go onto your blog and I'm, yeah, I'm not looking for brownie points here, but I could have ignored the posts you'd written about yeah. Me Too and, and, yeah. and sexual harassment. But I stepped in, I read them, it forced me to do some reflection about an incident that's now maybe 20 years ago, which is why I'm hesitant to go call or write to this person and apologise, because sure. I'm like, is that really serving this person? To yeah, you're doing it for her or for yourself. Yeah, is it yeah. for me or for her? So I'm conflicted there. But the fact I've gone through that thought process, the fact I've just apologised to her, if I mean, I'm the, the slight chance she's watching, and yeah, that wouldn't have happened, I suppose. And again, I'm not trying to give myself brownie points here, had I not exposed myself to your writing on that. Right, right. Um, I, I would highly recommend um, following mm. particularly women of colour. Um, there's a thing called, they call intersectiona intersectionality. Yes. Um, so, you know, I have a hard time. They have a really hard time. Um, I, I can't imagine what it must be like. Um, I'm just thinking of the, the incident where there was a, a doctor on a plane and somebody had a, a problem. Um, a medical problem and collapsed and she stepped in to try and help and the steward, the, the, um, steward said you know can you please sit back down we don't have time for you and she tried to tell her I'm a doctor let me help but because she was black woman see. the assumption was oh you just you know it doesn't look like the mental image we have of doctor um, women don't look like the mental image we have of developer Oh, I can still remember I went to a training course in Switzerland to train BDD and got there early. Everybody comes into the room and this one guy stops at the door and looks at me and just says, you're here to teach us BDD. I'm like, yeah. Have you heard of J-Behave? I'm like, well, yeah, I helped write it, you know, and, <laughs> and everybody laughed. But he had obviously got me pegged as not techie enough. And that's recently, right? That's... Yeah, that's within the last five years or so, you know. Yeah. Um, I often still get people who are surprised that I, I still code. I do still code. I've got an active GitHub. I've got a toy project that I'm working on that I'm hoping will actually make a difference to some people in a small way. I'm mostly doing it for fun, just to keep my hand in. But, you know, I'm still technical. Right. But we've talked about biases, but that's probably, yeah. that's probably is paying on. I think it's representation bias, isn't it, when we assume that somebody give, belongs to a particular group or not yeah. based on yeah. uh, particular characteristics of that group. But, yeah, yeah I and mean, you get people saying, well, you don't look like a developer. Well, I am a developer, so obviously that's not true. <laughs> you know? um, and I mean, I'm, I've been in the industry long enough now that I, I don't tend to get that, but I know a lot of the younger women in the industry do. Um, you know, oh, you, you can't possibly be a tech. Because um, you don't look like it. Having said that, um, there are some people who still do stereotypically look like developers. I remember being at a party um, for a startup, and we couldn't find any of the developers. And I said, "There's one in the corner." Um, and we went to talk to him, and he said, "How do you know I'm a dev?" I said, "Because you haven't taken your coat off and you're playing with your phone. You know, <laughs> you're not talking to anybody. You're playing with his phone still with the coat on." Um, so, 
a lot of developers are introverted as well. Um, so I am. I know I do a lot of speaking, but I recharge on my own. Um, so there's a, a movement called Inclusive Collaboration, which Sally Ann Freudenberg and Catherine Kirk kicked off. I'm very, very passionate about that as well. Um, so it's not just including women, women of colour. It's including people with autism and um, ADHD and you know, OCD and weird ways that your brain might be broken or not broken, but work differently. Um, I, I refer to all of our biases as our brains being broken. So it's, it's not meant as an insult to anybody with different ways of working. <laughs> Right. We're all broken. You right. want to know how broken? Go look at the, the Wikipedia. Um, has this link, list of um, cognitive biases. It's like 150 biases long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you can frame it as broken, or you can say we're we're optimized to make to to have sort of these inbuilt heuristics to yeah, they're shortcuts. Make they're shortcuts. Efficient decisions in um, our environment. You know, somebody once asked me what the worst thing about working with human beings was. I said it's our tendency to see patterns that don't exist, which means that we move forward in uncertainty in the wrong directions. I said, what's the best thing? I said, it's our ability to see patterns that don't <laughs> exist so that we can move forward in uncertainty. Otherwise, we wouldn't move at all. You know, so it, it, it is. It, it simultaneously hinders us, but it also helps us as well. Yeah. Um, but of course, when you're dealing with stereotypes like um, colour, or gender, um, you have biases that you grow up with. So, yeah. I can't speak passionately enough about unpicking those. Um, limiting beliefs are another one. Um, we grow up with limiting beliefs as well. I can't do this. Um, changing those can be pretty powerful. Yeah. And I think, in, in, in certainly the way that, that I approach this is to as much as possible focus on the individual and inquire as to the individual and 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 it's it's almost impossible not to of course we've got these bias even though we know we've got them we can't stop them mm. but to to come at it from to take an interest in the individual yeah I'd, I'd actually go wider i would look at the context um i had somebody emailed me and said, you know, Liz, I hope you don't mind. I just wanted your opinion. Would this be an OK slide to put in the conference deck? And it was a picture of a woman uh, surfing in a, you know, not even a, a tiny bikini. It was a kind of sports top and, and bottoms. Uh, the thing is that for most people, when they look at that, they'll treat it like a professional athlete. You know, she's a professional athlete, obviously doing professional athletic stuff. Do you want it in a conference slide? Goodness no, because I don't want to be the person sitting there when the guy next to the speaker says, you know, oh, Liz, when are we going to see you dress like that? And I pointed this out to the guy and said, oh, sugar, I don't think that way. It never occurred to me that somebody might think that way. Of course not. You've never, if, you're a, if you're the kind of person who behaves properly, you don't encounter it. But we do. <laughs> you know, so you have to think not just about is it okay from my perspective and their perspective, but is it okay given that there are some assholes, if you'll pardon the language, in the world, right. both male and female, you know? Um, but that raises a question. Do you, do you modify your behaviour to account for the 1% of assholes? Or... Yeah, don't, don't put women in vulnerable positions. You know, when you look at the slides you're about to include in the conference deck, it's not just about would I treat the woman 
properly? Yeah. Am I yeah. treating this woman yeah. with respect? Will other people also then treat other women with respect? Yeah. Um, so generally, just if you have to ask, the answer's probably no, it's not a good idea. Right. If you want to be safe. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Or you want me to be safe. Yeah. Even better. Yeah, right. If you want to be the environment to be safe for, yeah. for those in it. Okay. Um, and I can almost hear the people saying, yeah, but come on, where does that end? We can't prevent offending. Where does that end? Because there's a risk almost with anything that you might offend somebody. Yeah, sure, sure. There's a risk you might offend people. Um, I have been propositioned at conferences many, many times. Um, men, interested to know, would I like to go out with them? Uh, the times when it's been okay is when it's been safe for me to say no. Mm. So as long as I still have my options, I'm all good. You know, um, it's when people take those options away and right. they take my choices away from me that it becomes not good. Yeah. So um, I, it's it's impossible. It, like I don't want the human race to die out because men can't talk to women anymore. <laughs> That'd be awful. Um, but at the same time, I want there to be choices available. Um, I always say evil is just taking people's choices away from them um, so that you get yours and they don't get theirs. You know? And when, when that becomes unbalanced, it's not good. Hmm. So making sure that people get to still get to have their choices. Um, that's essentially what, what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Great. I mean, great. I mean, that sounded a bit <laughs> flippant. I mean, great in the sense of what you've done has made me think. So, you know, that, that incident you mentioned 20 years ago, you took her choices away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, she was in environment. And, and bodily autonomy is, is your choices. Yes. You know, I have the, the choice to do with my body what I choose to. Um, yeah, no, I can see that, yeah. And and I think exposing ourselves to the story so that we understand when we've done that. On, on, on all, and this is all of us. When we understand it, we've behaved in a way where we've eliminated choices or we've had people feel disempowered or yeah. lacking in autonomy um, is really important. And actually, when you think about it, that's a, a theme of a lot of the business conversations is about how do we give people autonomy and freedom to choose and options and uh, a sense of being free to be who they want to be. Yeah. yeah. And so, sometimes it can be the right thing to do to take people's choices and, and, or to make a very pointed suggestion, you know, that um, Dave talks about coupling and um, containing constraints. So a containing constraint is where you surrounded people they can't get out of the container but a coupling is where you point them in a direction and so you know you're creating a disposition so i i told you to say sorry i didn't give you choices there okay but it gave me the choice it gave me more options because otherwise i couldn't have got past that oh i see <laughs> unless you heard the apology it would have been difficult yeah. for you to continue the conversation so yeah. you, that was a a couple constraint yeah, yeah. it was it was for, for my benefit because it gave me more options okay Though I hope that the, um, I hope that if the if the lady in question doesn't hear it, maybe some other women will realise that you know it, it is making a difference. 
it is making people who've maybe made the occasional mistake think about that and think about the environment in which that mistake happened. Um, yeah, and, and certainly to, for me, drink, drink was a major factor. I mean, I, I mean, I only ever did, I only behaved in that way once in my life, as far as I'm aware, and it was one of the occasions in my life where I was the most drunk I've ever been. So, for me, it was a, you know, it was a, yeah. in some way. <laughs> I, don't I, I, don't I like, really go there, I like my wine. I do like my wine. I like to drink. Um, I would hate to not be able to party anymore. Um, but I think if you're the kind of person <clears> who <throat> behaves badly, maybe consider not doing that. <laughs> and and what, what's your take on female response? Let's just focus it on that, on, on the sexual harassment. Is Is there a responsibility for women? Is there... Is there is there something that women should should be accountable for in that in those scenarios? Um, supporting each other, uh, mostly. Um, somebody said to me once, you know, it's not a competition. So when somebody says, you know, oh, I've had this encounter, this this bad thing has happened, don't go. Oh, well, that's nothing. You should hear what happened to me at X Y Z conference. It's it's not a competition. Um, Every every person encounters things in their own way. Um, I've again had to learn. So a thing that I did, um, which was wrong, was to equate some aspects of racism with some aspects of of sexual harassment, you know, um, and racist incidents. And honestly, they're not equatable. They're just not. Some of the ways in which we deal with them might be. So we can talk about allies, we can talk about bias, we can, you know, that's human things which are common between them. But I cannot, in the same way that you cannot imagine the perspective of a woman, I cannot imagine the perspective of a person with colour. I've grown up with the privilege. Um, so I have to accept that there's only so much I'm going to be able to do. Um, I think we women do have a responsibility to women of colour um, to particularly promote and help them because my Me Too blog, my pain, means that somebody's now paying attention to me and because I'm white they will pay more attention to me than they will women of colour, you know, so that that's the way it works. Why We've got majority white people in technology so most people are going to be able to understand my pain a yeah, lot more than yeah, the women of colour. Yeah. So, you know, my pain does take away a little bit from theirs. Um, so it's it's on us to make sure that their voices are also heard. Um, we do have that responsibility as women, for sure. Mm. Um, I also do have a responsibility because I, I used to hate this. Oh, I'm I'm this poster child for for being a woman. I hated that. I'm like I'm a dev. I'm a big deer. I don't I don't want to be seen as a woman in IT. Um, but then somebody pointed out that actually the, the girls growing up who want to look at computing, they need role models. They need to be able to see women in tech having fun, doing great things. Um, and that's made me go, OK, all right, well, I'm prepared to have these conversations then. I'm prepared to put myself on a panel about sexism. And actually, I, I don't feel like a feminist. Um, I, 
I'm only a feminist because I want to code. I want to do tech and this stuff keeps getting in the way. Um, but I am willing to, to be a role model for any girls growing up. But you're a bit more than that because you are talking about Me Too. So in a sense, I mean, whether that's being a feminist or not, I don't know. But you're certainly doing more than just telling the world you're a coder and you're female. You're, you're, yeah, you're... but honestly, I, the only reason I, I talked about the Me Too bog is because I want to do well in tech. I want to be a coder. I want to be a, a, an agile coach. I want to be a consultant. I want to transform organisations. And this stuff keeps getting in the way. I don't want to have to talk about this stuff. I really don't. It just keeps getting in the way. Most of the women who talk about this stuff, they don't, nobody wants to do this for a living. <laughs> you know, it's, there's another goal that we're trying to get to, which is we're treated equally, we're treated with respect. Um, I had a conversation with a couple of people at XTC. A couple of guys were talking about sexism and sexual harassment and every time I tried to interject a point they, they interrupted me and they were very excited about it you know it's obviously alcohol as well so then they kept interrupting me and kept interrupting me and I said hey all right this is really interesting can I just stop you and ask what have I said in this conversation and they were like oh then thinking back they realized they'd interrupted me and then we went downstairs and joined some other people down at the table and they were it was, the theme of the evening so they were having a similar conversation and they got to watch as every time I opened my mouth somebody interrupted me every time and they were just sitting there just going because they had never seen it they had never seen that but it happens all the time no. um, sometimes it is wrong I think one of the best uh, ways of telling whether a group is getting on well or not is people talk over the top of each other. But when it's consistently a woman that's being talked over the top of and the men are giving each other time and space, you know, pay attention to that maybe because it does happen a lot. Um, <laughs> especially ironic when it's a conversation about equality and feminism and, and sexual <laughs> harassment. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Yeah, as in a dark, dark irony. It was just, it was hysterical in, in its irony, really was. Um, I, can't, I can't help but smile, it was just like, so ridiculous. But there you go, it does happen. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well thank you. So I, I well, that's given me food for thought as well. I think it's the listening and hearing people. So maybe you, I asked you that question about, for women, and I think that applies to all of us, isn't it? Is yeah, to, yeah. To listen, um, hear the stories. The only other thing I will say is we, we will always mess up. You know, we're learning to change our behaviour, we're learning to change habits, to change things that we've been thinking all our lives, and we will mess up occasionally. Um, I am inclined to be forgiving to people. I think that without that forgiveness, we don't get to move forward. Um, I think when people have apologised, um, you know, and I'm not talking about serious crimes. I am talking about um, I did bad and I took people's choices away um, in small, annoying ways rather than traumatic ways. Um, I think when people have apologised for that, let it go. Let it go. 
um, and move on and help move forward rather than just going, oh, but you did this wrong thing. Like I said, we, we always spot things going wrong much more easily than we spot things going right. I'd like to see a little bit more celebration of the fact that we're better. We're in a better place than we were. Do you see that? Yeah. Yeah, we're in a better... Well, the code of conduct meant I... You know, that's not the only time I've had my ass touched at a bar. Um, but it was the first time I felt empowered to actually do something about it. And that, and you think the, the code of conduct was instrumental yeah. to that? Yeah, right. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the way it was supported as well. I have had one code of conduct um, incident which um, I reported something I saw and the two people who were responsible for maintaining the code of conduct asked me three times whether I wanted to talk to the guy directly. And I was like, no, if you've had a word with him, it's plenty. Um, and it was so strange. I'm, I'm a little bit autistic, apparently. So um, I like having some space. Every time I moved a step back, they moved a step towards me and I moved a step back and they were both taller than I moved a step towards me and they managed to get me pinned behind this pillar and a table so I couldn't get out. Uh, and I obviously looked a little bit stressed because then the guy told me, you need to calm down. Don't ever say that to a woman, particularly not a woman who's trying to have a conversation about the code of conduct, you know, because, um, OK, now I'm calm, but it's because I'm angry. And you don't want that. Um, and I probably won't go back to that conference again. And that's a shame. Right. So how you deal with the code of conduct is as important as having one. Right. And the progress is that we're able to have a conversation about how people approach enforcing a code of conduct. Whereas yeah. that presumably yeah. wasn't even a thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, I Lee Natural Scotland, Chris McDermott worked really, really hard to make sure people knew how the code of conduct was, was um, going. And also don't necessarily leave it for the person to work out what the, the punishment should be. If somebody has violated the code of conduct in an egregious way, be ready to throw them out, you know. Don't, don't say, do you want me to throw them out? Because then it makes me the bad person. Right. I don't want to be the bad person. I've just been the, the hurt person. I don't want to be the bad person, you know. Um, by all means, listen to what I want. But if you if you are an organiser, be ready to make the decision yourself. Right. Right. Yeah, that's an important point. And don't flip and ask me three times if I want to talk to the person when I've already said no twice. Oh, grief. Well, I commend you, your bravery for talking about all this on, on on camera here and yeah sorry say publicly no don't apologize you it's... know who you are <laughs> yeah yeah now i'm i'm honored that you've chosen to, you. to share so powerfully and dealt with my disclosure in the way that you did right? I, mean... I, I wish we didn't have to talk about this you know i wish these incidents just didn't happen Right, but I think I think we are as a culture learning how do how do we I mean I know this I know that women have been in the workplace for a long time for a number of decades but it still seems to me that the men and women are still trying to work it out what are the rules what what 
you know, and I, I think we're still in a conversation about that. And we're still going to make mistakes. We're humans. You know, we are still going to make mistakes and we're going to tread on people's toes. Um, but say sorry when that happens. Well, the, the urge to double down, you know, that resist that urge to double down. Learn to say, yeah, I messed up. Sorry about that. Um, I think it's so vitally important, vitally important. Um, like I said, I'm not perfect. I've, I've messed up as well. So sorry. Mm. Learning to do better. Yeah. Celebrate the doing better. Yeah. And, and it's great to hear, I mean, because obviously I, I'm completely blind to that, whether or not there's been a progression <laughs> in how we treat women. I mean, of course, I could sort of make some guess, but the oh, fact that you've experienced something is... Oh, my first, I mean, my first job had a swimsuit calendar on the wall. The swimsuits were body paint. Like, you can try imagining getting work done in that environment. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, so, yeah, that's, there's no question that we, we understand better what's appropriate and what isn't. Um, and certainly that I... I the, the company that I work for then no longer exists, but I imagine if it did, it would have improved dramatically. Um, it's been sold, so um, I imagine that it's a completely different culture now. The other thing, it's like Moneyball. You ever seen Moneyball, the film? Mm. Or the Red Book? Mm. Um, you know, there's a ton of really talented women out there. And if you can get them, why wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that's also true, isn't it? That's you know, make the welcoming environment for them. Um, I, I don't have children, but I know a lot of women who have. They've dropped out of the workplace. ThoughtWorks have done a really, really good job at this. I mean, they're, they're like, I think, one-third women now. Um, and they have particular programmes to get women back into the workplace after they've taken a career break for, for kids or whatever reason. Um, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's part that's part of it, isn't it? It's appreciating the differences between men and women, which I think, and then the, the, there may be different needs, and we may want to accommodate yeah. Yeah. people in in different I, ways. <laughs> I do still want to see the the law change. So I know I think it's Sweden and Germany were the first people to have it, so that the parental leave could be split equally. Right. And as somebody who's not got kids and not ever going to have kids, you'd be like, well, why do you care? But it does affect me because people assume that I'm a woman and therefore a carer. And, you know, I had somebody say, oh, you know, Liz, um, I've got this great place that you, you should go visit. I said, well, why is it so great? And said, You've got so much in common with them. It's a mum's net network place. I'm like, I'm child-free. What? I've got nothing in common with these women apart from the fact they're all women. <laughs> like, whoever suggested that, I pointed out, you know, it's that that's essentially sexist. Just like, oh, you'll like these women because they're all women. Like, yeah. Did you did you did you follow any of the James Damore? The, the Google. The Google. Thing. Yeah. Yeah, memo. I did. Yeah. And what was your take on that? Because one reading of that is right. that, that, <laughs> that he's pointing to some, and I guess this can be debated, but to some established facts 
in terms of the psychological sure, let, let's, differences. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So biological differences between men and women. Obviously, there are some. Um, and they've discovered there are some differences in babies. I mean, you know, women like cuddling toys and, and boys, you know, girls like cuddling toys and boys, babies like throwing things. Um, but that's a tendency, right? This isn't, this isn't, oh, women all do this. Women right, all yeah, do the, this. The, on this average, these are average group differences. Right, yeah. so you can imagine there may be some overlapping bell curves. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's the biological differences. Capabilities? Do we have different capabilities? Probably not, right? I think that um, women are just as capable as men at, say, doing maths. I, I studied maths for a lot of, a lot of my life. Uh, my mum was a maths, maths graduate from Cambridge, maths teacher. Um, capabilities at somewhere like Google, given what you have to do to get in there? No. <laughs> right? They're, the women at Google are just as capable as men, men at Google. Yeah, yeah. Like, why would you even think anything different and there's so few women there as well um like they they don't have thought works one third female just so yes there are some biological differences no they're not relevant and that you know even if they were a hell of a lot of coding is actually talking to people and the soft skills not just the hard technical stuff um and that's even if there were which they're not <laughs> like our, our capabilities are just as, as as we're just as capable as, as men. Um, yeah, I I didn't get into programming because I decided to take on something that was hard and I didn't enjoy. I took it on because I really loved it and yeah. I found it easy. You know. Mm. Um, Yeah, I don't look like a dev. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, you've, you've seen the Me Too blog. You've heard my stories. If women are having a, a harder time at programming than the men are, that's one place to start looking. Okay. And it's the stories of what came out at, at Uber, you know, the, the men all getting leather jackets and the women not being able to because there were so few of them, it was too expensive. Really... So it's those kind of stories, just getting treated not the same, treated with less respect, treated with less opportunity, less pay. Um, I'm not an expert in these things, so I'm probably just going to leave it there. But for somebody who wants to know, there's plenty of research out there about the impact that different behaviours can have on our, our acceptance into the, into the world of tech. Right, and actually that word, that word respect is important because to bring it back to the, the lean or the agile conversation, if you think about lean principles, your number one is respect for people. Yeah. And so if that's falling down in the dynamic between men and women, already you've got a, a violation of one of the core principles for any of this, if we're talking about business agility to work or safe to fail environments, right? So it's, yeah. it's, it's relevant in that respect. Um, I actually wrote a whole blog about um, respect as a test um, so if people are not showing respect, there's probably something in the culture, something in the environment which could be fixed. Um, and a lot of it is feedback. 
So if you are seeing people behave disrespectfully, something you can usefully do as an ally is just let them know. Hey, I saw you do this thing. I think that's disrespectful. And I would love it if, if men did that with other men, because, you know, it saves me a lot of time. Um, I was watching that Gillette advert that got so much backlash. Mm. I didn't actually um, see it, but I saw some of the back. Uh, I thought it was just lovely. I, I find it astonishing that given all the men featured in that uh, video, a lot of people chose to associate themselves with the ones behaving badly, not the ones behaving well. <laughs> you know, because both those kinds of people were in that video, um, but both those kinds of men. Um, but they've also forgotten that uh, Gillette make women ra women's razors too. <laughs> You know, so they've got a very loyal fan base there now. Um, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I, I really love seeing men take on that burden of correcting, of providing feedback to other men themselves. Just leave us out of it so we can actually get on with some, some coding for a change. That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. OK. Or get on with enjoying your conference in the case of yeah, enforcing yeah. a code of conduct if that's a male male yeah. scenario yeah okay good uh, so one question we like to ask our guests often on, on the show is um, to you Liz what does it mean to be human what does it mean to be human um, it means being flawed it means making mistakes it means um, finding your way and seeing what happens and I think for me, being a good human means being forgiving to people um, and helping them overcome the failures. You know, I, I can make it safe for people to fail by giving them feedback, by accepting their apologies. And I think that there's not enough of that in the world. Uh, that's what it means to me, and I would like to see more of it. Okay, thank you. Beautiful. And for people who want to learn more, there's the Lunivore. Um, so LizKeo.com is my blog. blog. Uh, my services site is Lunivore.com, but it's horrifically out of date. Um, I'm Lunivore on Twitter. Uh, you can find me there. Um, it's hard to stop me having a conversation about a lot of this stuff, so chances are good that I'll engage. Um, um, brilliant. Okay, and I can highly commend the blog. Um, yeah, as I say, the writing on Kevin is excellent and complex if you're interested, and, and we've, we've touched Thank on you. The, the Me Too and, and the harassment things. Okay. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.